You're listening to the Refined Hippie Podcast, a show all about holistic lifestyle, nutrition, and plant-based veganism for a mind-body-spirit approach to living healthfully and happily for ourselves and our planet. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Rebecca Henson. I am so happy that you are joining me today for this really great topic and really incredible guest. But before we get into that, just a brief reminder that if you have not already signed up for my newsletter, be sure to do so. I am coming out with a vegan holiday recipe guide that is going to have over a dozen of my favorite go-to recipes for the holidays. So be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you'll be notified right when that comes out. And also I am doing now the one month reset program So you do not have to sign up for three months. You don't have to commit to that. If you don't want to, you can try just a one-month reset. This can still help change your life, change your lifestyle, and get on a better habit. Perhaps right before the holidays is a good idea. So you will have already created these healthier habits. You've got better ideas for recipes and go-to meals that are quick, delicious, and nutritious. As always, you can find out more at my website, therefinedhippie.com, or email me, Rebecca at therefinedhippie.com. So let's jump right into today's episode, which is with Dr. Crystal Heath, a veterinarian in the Bay Area who also happens to be vegan. In a profession that is supposedly all about animals, you would think this wouldn't be that uncommon, but unfortunately, and oddly enough, it is. Dr. Heath is an outspoken animal rights advocate on the founding committee of Veterinarians Against Ventilation Shutdown, which urges the American Veterinary Medical Association to reclassify ventilation shutdown as a, quote, not recommended method of depopulation. She's also part of OurHonor.org, whose goal is to create an organized network of professionals who are able to formally challenge unethical, institutionalized systems and amplify the voices of those who have been marginalized. Dr. Crystal has been targeted by the agriculture industry, which was revealed by a Freedom of Information Act request of the United States Department of Agriculture showing the industry's coordinated efforts to discredit her and portray her as a, quote, dangerous animal rights activist for speaking out against factory farming. Dr. Heath garnered worldwide attention after an Intercept article laid out the details of the story. We chat all about her story, shelter medicine. We also discuss terminal surgeries, testing on animals, the veterinary profession and school, the smear campaigns on Dr. Crystal, livestock medicine, the EATS Act, and so much more. It is a fascinating episode. So without further ado, here is my chat with the inspirational Dr. Crystal Heath. Hello, Dr. Crystal. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. You are the first veterinarian that I've ever had on the show. Oh, wow. Well, hopefully there'll be more to come. I hope so too. Um... I, when I've talked about having you on with like my mom and some other people and, and I, and I, I like to say, I'm like, I'm having on a vet, a veterinarian. And it's really exciting because it's, you know, she doesn't eat her patients <laughs> and they yeah. think it's like the funniest thing. And they're like, I never thought about it like that. I'm like, yeah, yeah. most vets eat their patients. <laughs> well, I mean, most people eat, eat animals know, and they love animals and still eat them. And, you know, the truth is we need more vegans to come to vet school and change all of that because we are the authority figures when it comes to animals. So if there are a bunch of vegan vets, you know, and you come to bring in your dog or your cat to the veterinarian and there's all this vegan propaganda everywhere and informing people about um, what we do to animals, I think that would really change everything a lot, a lot more quickly. Totally. Absolutely. would make it more normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been listening to a couple other podcasts that you were on doing some research and uh, it sounds like it's kind of a scary thing to even, if you're going into vet school uh, to, to let them know that you're vegan because they might not even let you in. 
Yeah, because there's, you know, animal producers sit on the admissions boards of these vet schools, people who work in animal experimentation, and they want to protect their interests. And they also, you know, are kind of normalized to the use of animals. And there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. They're kind of entrenched in the system. They don't want to feel like they're the bad person. So they really want to project onto vegans that, you know, those vegans, animal rights activists, they don't know what they're talking about. They're foolish and everything. They're crazy. So it's, it's hard to kind of combat that, go into vet school and, you know, be open about being vegan or an animal rights activist because you're often dismissed as somebody who's just uneducated. And if we just educated these people about this, you know, they would make different choices or they would realize that we have to do this. Ultimately, they think, oh, well, I'm a producer. I, this is how food is made. Or I'm a, I experiment on animals because we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the mindset that we have to battle when we go into vet school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the, the mindset in, I guess, all industries and everything because it's, well, this is the way we've always done things and animals mm-hmm. are here for us and all the, you know, the same things keep getting, you know, perpetuated over and over and over in everybody's ears. And, um, and I probably was, you know, I, I, I the thing is uh, with kids too, or like when you're growing up, you're told that, or what well, you're told that this is the way things are obviously. And then you're also shown images of animals in these wonderful fields with the sun shining and it's like happy cows create happy, good milk or whatever, you know, whatever that slogan was. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in your mind, you're like, Oh, well then it's fine. You know, it's kind of that idea of like, Oh, they just have one bad day and the rest of their life is so great. And so it's fine because we need them to eat, you know, to, to, to live. And otherwise we, you know, we'll starve to death or protein deficiency. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's such a huge problem. Like that's such Um, a huge problem. And it, it's hard because it, I think in vet school, we kind of are taught this idea that animals in the wild suffer greatly and actually animals on farms, you know, they're given shelter, food, water, and like a quick and painless death. But that's when like the thinking stops. I mean, animals on farms suffer greatly. They're not often not able to exhibit their natural behaviors. They're transported hundreds of miles to slaughter. They often die on the floor of these facilities, um, and it's not the idyllic life. And I, I'm sure, you know, many of them would rather be living in the wild if given the opportunity. But now, of course, we've bred them in such a way that they can't live mm-hmm. in the wild, um, and they likely would suffer in some cases, but not all cases. I mean, I've seen many. You know, I was just walk, watching. Um, some ducks that were released to a pond nearby. And it's like, these are domestic ducks, but they're doing pretty well out here on this pond and living kind of a much better life than they would on a factory farm. Mm -hmm. Um, But these sorts of discussions in vet school are, are stifled. They're not allowed to be had. And the, the students often don't have the language to have these debates with their professors who are in a position of power and authority, who've got their talking points down for why we do the things we do. And often they're just like, well, I'm not going to like try to battle and debate this professor who's Mm -hmm. in this position of authority who can affect my career potentially and my grade and make me look like a fool in front of my classmates. So it is really hard and it's really challenging, but we're here to support those vets and those vegans to want to go to vet school. Totally. So we have a lot (laughs) that we can talk about. You are doing amazing work, but before we get into that, I'm just curious, how did you become Dr. Crystal? Were you, did you always want to be a vet? Like I, I wanted to be a vet, like a lot of kids. I wanted to be a vet when I was a little kid and like my whole family thought I was going to be a vet. There was like an ongoing joke because I just had this, you know, obvious connection to animals and this like, it was like magnetic, you know, like magnetism or whatever. Um, so were you like that? Like, what is your, what's your story? Yeah. I always loved animals. I grew up in a rural area and my neighbors raised pigs and cattle and sheep and we had horses and everything. And I was in 4-H and it, I think everybody always thought that I would be a vet, but I did not. 
because I was not the academic type, really. Um, my uncle was a veterinarian, and he was quite prominent and famous as a racehorse vet. And, you know, he'd be mentioned and he would be in magazine articles and such. But I was like, I'm not him. You know, I'm not that smart. Um, and I, I really liked riding horses, which I don't do anymore. <laughs> but that, I grew up doing that and I wanted to be an Olympian. And so started down that path and trained with a judge and spent sort of a long time doing that. And then I realized this is really unfulfilling. And if I want to progress in the ranks, I will have to treat animals not in the way that I want to treat them. Like my horse was my sibling, like my best friend. And people were telling me I had to sell her to, to buy a better horse. And I was like, this isn't the kind of relationship I want with animals. And, but I was fascinated by medicine and I wanted to help animals, but I ironically went to vet school, not to really be a vet. I thought I would be like a business person because I always liked starting businesses. And I thought this would be a way I could continue being with my horses. I could treat my horses. I could learn from other people and I would do something else though, to make money. Um, and I had, I had my own business. And then I, I discovered shelter medicine and loved it. And I love surgery so much. I like, I can't go a day without like thinking about surgery and wanting to do it. Like, it's just so much fun. It's like, I, I can't even describe it because it sounds weird. Like you're cutting into animals and they're bleeding and stuff, but it's like, it's so rewarding and so much fun. It's like arts and crafts and you get to help in shelter medicine. You get to help dozens of animals in a day. And that was so rewarding and so fulfilling. And you get to track them, how they progress through the weeks, going from this skinny, scrawny little animal to um, someone who finds their forever home and is healthy. And that was just so thrilling and rewarding. So that's sort of how I progressed reluctantly into veterinary medicine. It's like, it wasn't something I planned for myself, but it was just kind of fate that Slowly led happened. me here. Yeah. It was meant to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The surgery thing. Yeah. It's maybe like a, like a puzzle or something, you know, obviously when, when you go in trying to do a spay or neuter, you know what you're doing, but otherwise, like if it's an illness or something that you're going, like, I don't know if you do tumors or things like that, like, it's kind of like a puzzle, you know, like putting yeah. it together. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of vets who don't like doing surgery, which is totally fine. I do not like treating sick animals. Yeah. <laughs> like I, it, I don't like seeing them sick. I, it, I don't like seeing animals in pain. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of veterinarians who get a, a good feeling of reward from taking that sick suffering animal and, and making them feel better. Um, it's emotionally challenging to me. I still do it. And, but I would much rather just be in surgery, doing my task, um, and cutting up animals, putting them back together again. Um, <laughs> it's so it's like people with that arts and crafts, hands-on sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, it's perfect for people like us and yeah. not everybody is like that, but that is, I, I am a very much hands-on do it sort of person. I want to fix things right now. And with surgery, you can fix them right now and send them on their way, which yeah. I love. And being like super meticulous, you know, you have to have really mm -hmm. good, you know, hand coordination and be yes, really I love like <laughs> making things perfect. Like yeah. when I sew them, their skin back together, I love making it beautiful. Like Aww. that gives me so much pleasure and everybody compliments me on my incisions because it's like, it's like nothing happened. This is amazing. Wow. Um, one of my patients, I removed a giant tumor from her and she had a big mammary tumor oh. and I meticulously like sewed all of these sutures so that it would heal nice and like nothing was there. And the guy came to pick up his dog and he had a big gash on his head and he's like, man, I wish you sewed up my wound. Like he was in a bar fight. I was, it was a rough area. <laughs> and he's like, and that, this incision looks much better than the suture. Yeah, he's like, I wish you could have been my, my surgeon. Or yeah. 
I, for a brief minute before veterinary school, I thought about doing plastic surgery, but uh, I don't think I could have dealt with people doing it for aesthetic reasons. Yeah. I like doing it for healing yeah. improvement reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And dealing with animals, although you still have to deal with their caretakers, but <laughs> dealing with animals is nicer. Um, I was listening to, to, like I said, one of the, another podcast you were on and, and y'all were talking about terminal surgeries, mm-hmm. which I had no idea about this. I don't know. I, I, a lot of us probably, those who are listening might not have ever given that much thought to veterinarian school at all. Like what you're taught or, you know, how, just how the whole, you know, is it four years? How, how many? Yeah. Years? It's four years after you get your bachelor's degree. Your bachelor's. Yeah. yeah so so ta- tell us about terminal surgeries. What the heck that is. So how do vet students learn how to do surgery? Well, in the past, they would have an animal like a dog, usually that they would perform one or more surgeries on. Um, they used to wake them up. They would do a surgery, take out a kidney or, you know, do something, spay, neuter them, wake them up. And then a a week later, do another surgery on them, remove something. In one case, there's this veterinary ethics book where Dr. Bernard Rowland talks about one student who beat his dog with a sledgehammer and then spent the semester repairing the damage. Like this is kind of the mindset and the culture veterinary medicine came from. And this was way back in the day. This, that sort of thing isn't done anymore. Now we moved away from terminals, from those repeated survival surgeries where we perform multiple surgeries on animals. But some schools still do terminal surgeries where the students will practice surgery on an animal and then kill them afterwards. And this was thought to be more humane because the animal wasn't waking up and wouldn't feel the effects of a student surgery. But Schools are moving away from this too, thank God, because like here you're causing harm, you're killing your patient just for your benefit when really that isn't necessary. We have animals who need surgeries and they can be done under the guidance of experienced surgeons. And this is why, one reason why I love surgery so much is because I didn't have to harm anyone. When I learned surgery, I learned under the guidance of experienced surgeons I, I learned on models first, you know, once you, you show that you're proficient doing something on a model, then you're allowed to touch a living animal with a, somebody watching over your shoulder, stepping in, if you're having any difficulty and you just do that over and over and over again and provide good pain relief. And you get to watch your animal, your patient wake up and manage their pain afterwards and advise their, their caretaker, which you don't get experience doing if you're just going to kill your patient. Um, and that just really devalues our patients too. Veterinarians, totally. we want to be have the same status as human doctors, mm-hmm. but we don't we can't have that status if our patients are just treated like something disposable mm-hmm. that we can just discard. So, yeah, so yeah. then for I mean, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. with human doctors, I mean, do they, I, I never thought about that either. Obviously they do have to do some type of surgery. Who do they do surgeries on? Obviously they're not killing their patients if they're humans. Well, they used to yeah. actually use pigs too, to practice oh. surgery on them and then they would kill them. And I've talked to human doctors who were devastated by this and, and medical schools are moving away from even that. Even Good. human doctors say we're, we're, we're not, not about right. harming any species. Right. Um, but of course we harm animals in the experiments that we do to create medicines too. Yeah, which that has been, I mean, and that is so, not a good, I, I've wanted to do an episode on that because yeah. I mean, it's not even a good indication of how the drug is going to react to humans. I'm not a mouse. It's not going to be the same, you know? Um, exactly. And there's so much, I have like kind of this vision for like what, what it looks like. Cause we obviously, we, we, we want to test on dogs so that they have medications to help their species. And we want to, but how do we do that ethically? And I think we can do that the same way that we try a new medication in an infant or a child who can't consent. We have, you know, their guardian is is making sure that their best interests are taken care Mm of, but we still have ethical problems in human experimentation too. 
I think a lot of there's a, a lack of informed consent in human experimentation. And I've talked to people on institutional re review boards who have those issues and who've talked about that. So um, yeah, I mean, but still discussions worth having and much change that needs to be made. Yeah. I can't, was it last year? I mean, I think that something is, as far as testing on animals, I, because I think, was it, and I, again, I clearly don't know that much about it, but it was something about um, that pharmaceutical companies were being required to have a te testing on animals. And now that's been, that requirement is gone. Yeah. Well, or, it's yeah. the FDA Modernization Act. So now okay, yeah. they're allowed in some instances to use um, non-animal models to prove safety. Mm. Um, it's still, it's not, there's still a lot of barriers. And I think, mm. you know, there's this huge infrastructure of testing on animals and it's hard to change, steer the course to change course of this giant ship like, well, we ha already have this lab full of mice that we test on or, or beagles or whatever. So, and this is kind of the, the, the roadmap for how we approve a drug. So we're just going to continue, continue mm -hmm. doing that. We've just always done this. Let's just keep doing it. Yeah. Let's just keep yeah. doing it. Why not? Um, unless it saves them money, it saves them time in some <laughs> ways. Um, people aren't going to change just like people's diets. We're not going to change our diets unless we really feel ethically motivated to, or it saves us time, it saves us money, it's easy. And most people are are only gonna change if it saves them time, money, and, and convenience. Yeah, well, and they're told constantly through different propaganda that being plant-based vegan is expensive. And mm -hmm. of course, I will say it can be hard, it can be difficult if everybody around you, you know, if everyone around you is not changing, if you, um, you know, if you're one person in your entire family that wants to change and then you have to do your own food and, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that can be very difficult, but overall, I think in 2023, it is so much easier to be a vegan plant-based yeah. than it ever has been, you know? Yeah, it is easy, but it's still, I, I go Stigma. to yeah. rural areas and it's still oh. hard and it's still, but I, like, I'm vegan and you know, love it and everything, but it's hard, you know, those people, I know so many people who want to, yeah. but they just, it's hard to change your habits. And totally. when they don't have a ton of people around them, encouraging exactly. them, it's really hard. That's the issue. I mean, I grew up in a small town and I, I swear if I had known somebody who was even vegetarian, I knew no one. I, if there was anyone in my town who was vegetarian, they kept it on the down low. <laughs> like yeah. we're not talking about it because I, I don't think I ever even, I never contemplated it. And I, um, I was a huge animal lover. It just finally becoming a vegan, um, that like aligns with my morals that I've had my entire life has been like maybe the biggest, most wonderful change of my life. <laughs> and yeah. I know that might sound dramatic with some people, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. And you can't explain it until you've yeah. actually done it. And, but, you know, my parents and so many people I know just don't think that they can be healthy vegan. So that's a big barrier too. And now there's all of this propaganda saying all meat diets are like oh. the, the healthy thing. Oh gosh. Like your Jordan Peterson's. Oh your, gosh, it makes uh, me crazy. What's that guy's name? Baker, Dr. Baker, whoever. Oh my gosh, um, I, I was looking at some things um, yesterday about that. I forgot what the guy, maybe his name's Paul or somebody. I don't remember what his last name is, but you know, the Blue Zones documentary came out. Are you familiar with Blue Zones? I know Blue Zones, but I didn't know that yeah. there was a documentary. That yeah. So there's a short, it's just four episodes um, with Dan Buettner. And of course, he's been getting a lot of publicity. He's going on a lot of podcasts. He's been interviewed on different, probably mainstream media outlets or whatever. And so, of course, the the carnivores are coming out in droves to attack <laughs> the mm -hmm. Blue Zones and attack the studies. And it's like, oh my gosh, can we please? Uh, it's sad. It's sad. The thing but yeah. I Every now and then I go on to social media of those um, all meat diet people and I just ask them, so should everybody eat this diet? And then like, what'll happen? Like, do we have enough land <laughs> to feed everybody this all meat diet? Like, 
Well, and a lot of them are pushing, a lot of them will say that they're against like factory farms. Mm -hmm. So, okay, then how do you expect the whole point? The reason why we have so many animals that we can kill is because of factory farms right now. That is what happened, right? Yes. This is why we went from eating, what, 60 something pounds of meat in the 1960s to now 200 and something. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's not sustainable. And then people are like, oh, you know, then there's the hunter ones who are like, I only eat, you mm-hmm. know, the meat that I hunt. Well, everybody's not going to do that. And everybody can't do that. Like, and what if they did though? <laughs> like we would decimate. Wildlife. Obviously like, we only have 4% of the, po- of the, of the, of uh, the biomass on the planet. That's a wildlife. Right. I mean, so yeah. they would be gone real fast. Yeah. I really like some of those people like Joe Rogan, like with his whole thing, I really want to debate that guy. He seems like he's thoughtful. He seems like that's the thing. He, he is. And he does have on a lot of different people from all different viewpoints, except for that one. You know, he's only had on, he had the guy from the game changers, Mm -hmm. uh, James Wilkes. I think he had on him, but when he had him on, he had another guy, his meat guy so there were three it was like a gang up they were like mm-hmm. ganged up on him you know <laughs> I I'm know like that's well that's not even no. <laughs> like, yeah i know um, i feel like he would be open to i just i feel like i don't know i don't know why he hasn't been more open to it but i guess because he really does not want to change that part of his i mean it's like his identity but he doesn't look that healthy though that's i mean like no. i'm not i don't want to like attack somebody's looks or anything but like no he doesn't look that I just don't think that this big giant macho man is really, it's not that natural anyways. You know, if you're having to go to the gym and, and work out for several hours a day and that's not, that's not normal. Do you think that our ancestors did that? And that's not what they body type look like. Yeah. Taking all these supplements and all of these things that he has to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, crazy but I wonder if there was some sort of like lab grown something or you know we have totally precision fermentation or something to give him like the flavors and the manly and we marketed it in a really manly way they're against they're (laughs) against that they're totally he's totally against the man the the lab grown stuff for sure like how do we get past that how do we I don't know because a lot of those people are, are are they claim that they claim that the government is trying to make us all vegan, which is clearly not true. <laughs> like the the government no. is in cahoots with with the animal. What are you talking about? You know, we're literally paying billions of dollars of our money. Like, to why would they say that? Industry. I know, and so that's absurd. And then they'll claim that the government is trying to make us all eat bugs or whatever and eat lab grown meat. And I'm like, they're not trying to do that. If that was true, they would have changed the food pyramid. Because they did, I know that Canada had changed theirs and it just said it had like beans and stuff like that. And ours still apparently has meat on it, which that was not changed because industry went mm-hmm. nuts when they got, when they got word that they were trying to change it. Yeah. And it, the, the pork board is, is paying for a lot of these nutrition studies too. And it's, it's disturbing the American Association of Swine Veterinarians on their website. It's like, this is a veterinary website. They post this pork board propaganda studies talking about how meat reduces cardiovascular risk or something like that. That was a pork board funded study. And it's like, what is, what is your role here, guys? Shouldn't the role of swine veterinarians be like my role as a shelter veterinarian? Like, I hope that the next generation has no shelter veterinarians because all animals have homes. Shouldn't swine veterinarians be like, my goal is to make it so that there's no more swine veterinarians, no more, at least no more swine veterinarians working in production because we have scaled it down, but no, they defend gestation crates. They defend mass killing of animals via heat stroke in emergency situations. Um, it's, it's horrifying and it's That's disturbing. Horrible. That's so disturbing. How do, I mean, are these people just that, I don't, I just, how do they go to sleep at night? <laughs> you know, it's, they believe that they're doing the right thing. They're feeding yeah. the country. They're feeding their children. Um, they believe it's necessary and somebody's got to do it. It's mm. an unchangeable fact. Um, mm. 
so reading a lot about like Nazi doctors, <laughs> it's like very much the same mindset. It's like, we're doing this for the good of our country, our humanity. Um, we have to do this. And people like me who are, you know, saying gestation crates are cruel and ventilation shutdown shouldn't be publicly funded as a means of depopulating animals in emergencies. We are the danger. Um, and it's, it's just this ideology and this culture. They don't really get to have conversations with people like mm. me and they push people like me away. I wasn't allowed to go to the AVMA Humane Ending Symposium because they, they were really talking about me like I, I was a threat. What? I would pose, people are even saying that I would be violent when I'm a vegan, compassionate, professional person, don't have a history of violence, don't think I could be violent if I tried, wow. but well, it's just, just that fear It's they, the fear part, they're trying to push fear on every, you know, to be afraid of you for all these different reasons. And it's just plain old pop propaganda one-on-one, you know? Yeah. It, it's really frightening just how yeah. fearful they are. And I, I'm hoping that there's some way we could start a dialogue, but I, I went up to one veterinarian to have a conversation and she just wouldn't even look up at me. She just said, I can't talk to you. It's like wow. we're colleagues here. Wow. And in our, our principles of medical ethics, we, it says that you're not allowed to uh, disparage, you know, our colleagues and, and such. But meanwhile, leaders, veterinarians who are leaders are actively writing articles about me disparaging me, calling me a militant vegan with a streak of zealotry, implying that I might be violent when I have no history of violence. And they are elevated and given, you know, platforms and are professors. Um, and I think we just have to shine a light on it and things will change. But yeah, it's hard. So when did that, when did that happen? When did you learn that you were being banned or barred from these different this all started in April of 2020. Just when COVID hit, um, I was starting to post more things about criticizing animal agriculture. And I think when COVID hit, the pork board started this campaign to really surveil social media and try to make sure that their narrative was getting out there and anybody who was critical of them would be shut down. And so yeah. I posted something saying that it's racist to blame the Chinese wet markets for COVID-19 when our factory farms pose the same risk. And my colleagues reached out to me and said, you know, you really should shadow a livestock veterinarian. You don't know what you're talking about, but I studied animal science in vet school. I know what I'm talking about. I grew up in 4-H but fine, I'm down to do that. So I posted in a veterinary Facebook group that I was looking to shadow livestock vet and they screenshotted that along with my public Facebook page that was posting things critical of animal agriculture um, from various groups and saying that I was going to go undercover and secretly record people. It, like if I was actually going to secretly record people undercover, do you think I'd post something critical of animal agriculture on my public Facebook page? Like, no, but this is just the fear or whatever that they're trying to propagate. And so this meme went around about me, like this rainbow colored meme. I don't know if you've seen it. So it says no. beware at the top. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, it says beware. Dr. Heath means nothing good for a profession. Um, all of this stuff, like it was really long. It said I was affiliated with the ALF or sympathetic to the ALF or the ELF, which I was, I'm not, um, but oh yeah, gosh. I don't, it was, it was crazy. And so then we found this email from the Animal Ag Alliance that was sent around, um, basically saying that my intentions they believed were to uh, film people and use it get evidence to use against the industry. Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept learned about this and wrote a wonderful story about it. 
you know, talking about how the ag industry surveils and punishes critics. I was on his show and that's kind of how it all started. And I kind of exploded, became more famous in that realm and started our honor. And ever since then, you know, they have, there have been more and more articles about me by the industry calling me a zealot and militant vegan and all of these things. And we've gotten more FOIAs where veterinarians are kind of criticizing me for my advocacy about ventilation shutdown. But, wow. you know, this is how it changes pain, I guess. I don't, oh. I used to be so scared. I'm like, oh my gosh, like nobody is trusting me and believing me. But, you know, now I'm just like, well, this just shows what the problem is. Um, and many people do trust me. And now I know some of my classmates are vegan now. My vet school classmates are vegan and they don't talk to me about it. I've just kind of heard through the grapevine and oh, every yeah. now and then one reaches out to me and says, oh, thank you so much for all of it you do for animal welfare. And just so you know, I'm vegan now, or like, I really appreciate your work and everything. So I think change is coming. It is. It's just slower than we would all like, you know? Yeah. Um, but it is people like you. And and sadly, it it it's people like you who are kind of thrown under the bus to that, you know, kind of opens the door for, for others and also to just bring awareness to it, you know? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of vets who are like, well, I'm scared to say anything because I don't want what happened to you to happen yeah. to me. And I, or, or they say, I want to maintain dialogue with the industry. And it's like, I get it. That's a good tactic that works for some people. But I also think more of us need to use our voices and just point out how awful this is and be unafraid to say how awful things are for the animals and how it's barbaric what we're doing to them with all of our knowledge we have we have all of this ability and technology to find suffering to heal suffering and what do we do with it we turn animals into machines and we pack them into factory farms and we develop more cruel, faster, more efficient killing methods. And can't, what if we use those tools to help animals and work for the best interests of all species? I think that would be better for all of us. I agree. I totally agree. Um, I did want to touch a little bit about ventilation shutdown. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what mm -hmm. that is. And it is very disturbing to, um, to hear about it, but ex explain what that is. Yeah. And during emergency situations like avian influenza or the COVID-19 outbreak where slaughterhouses had to be shut down or their capacity reduced because workers were getting sick. They they, it, in 2020, they had this like backlog of pigs because they have this just-in-time model where the, the pigs, once they reach market weight, go to slaughter and new pigs come in behind them. And so when the pigs who were of market weight couldn't go to slaughter because there was no empty shackles on the slaughter lines, no, not enough workers, they double-stocked them. They tried to reduce their feed, but ultimately they were like, we have to get rid of them somehow. We have to kill them somehow. And so what they did was seal up barns, pump in heat and steam and wait for the animals inside to die after many hours. And this is a method that the American Veterinary Medical Association says can be used in constrained circumstances. But here in this instance, this was just the industry failing to plan for any emergency. This wasn't an infectious disease outbreak. This was just a failure to plan. and. So they're allowed to do this. And it, it's interesting at the time, the veterinarians were saying, well, is this a violation of animal cruelty laws? How, how will this work? And ultimately it's like, well, it's now industry standard and it's in the AVMA guidelines. And we have the approval of the AVMA animal welfare division to do this. So we're gonna go ahead and do this. Um, and since then, it looks like what they're not really developing better ways, less barbaric ways to deal with things. We have African swine fever coming 
Um, that would be a huge risk to our pigs. And if that were to hit a farm, all of those pigs would have to be depopulated. And there are less barbaric ways like using captive bolt guns, like high expansion nitrogen-based foam, which just causes the, the pigs to pass out. Um, but they're still, they still have this method that's a method to be used in constrained circumstances. And as long as it's listed in the guidelines, the producers whose animals are killed this way get taxpayer bailouts for killing their animals. So they get indemnity payments, they get reimbursed by taxpayers, which then perpetuates the cycle of them continuing their business model that creates the very constrained circumstances that lead to this depopulation. So. I mean, they're basically getting like rewarded. Yeah. Yeah. And that I was thinking of like, what's an example of like what we're doing? It would be like if a puppy mill continued to have parvo outbreaks and we just kept reimbursing these dog breeders for their their lost puppies during these outbreaks. Yeah. He would be appalled. I mean, when it, whenever anybody hears the word of puppy mill, they're like freak out and just, oh, that's the most disgusting, disturbing thing. So yeah, if, if your tax money was going to pay for freaking puppy mills, like people would lose their minds. Yeah. But so, yeah, well, and because it's also barely hits the news, you know, I mean, I think, I feel like they did. I, I mean, of course I saw when it happened because of the people that I follow and things like that. But I do think it was on mainstream media, but probably just for like two seconds, you know, mm -hmm. like they probably just had one little segment on it and then that's, it, and then they go to the next thing, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's something that we all should be talking about more. I mean, food is so important, but it's even when I talk to animal advocates after a while, they, they just kind of glaze over and they're like, what you're saying is so horrifying. I go to conferences and after I start talking to people for a few minutes, they're like, I have to go over there. Oh. <laughs> you're just horrifying. You're making me your... so sad. <laughs> yeah. But we have to look at the horror and the darkness. If we want to change it, we can't just keep no. continue turning a blind eye to it. But how do we get this in the media? How do we make the public aware of what they're paying for? I know. In a way that is not, I don't know. I don't know what there's like a middle way because it is, I mean, I've seen, I've, I've listened to the audio. I've seen some of this. I mean, you know, and I, not that I need another reminder of that. I'm like on the right path, but it is just another, uh, another um, reason why I am, you know, yeah. have this lifestyle and, but yeah. So how do you, how do you show that to people without making them super depressed. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think pe people should be mad that their taxpayer dollars are going to this. We have to talk to our legislators and get them to, to change things. People like to take action. So, you know, writing That's your true. legislator um, that you do not want your tax dollars going to this, you know, we should be investing in food that does not require the slaughter of animals with all of our technology that we're using to cause just horror mm -hmm. upon the planet. Why aren't we using this tech, same technology to remove the need to slaughter other beings on this planet for our mm -hmm. food production when that technology exists already, you know, and yeah. beans are a technology that's been around since forever yeah. the dawn of agriculture yeah um more beans i love the beans is how campaign what um, is that I don't know if you've seen this beans yeah. is how it's it's kind of to the whole campaign is to increase global consumption of beans i think by like 50 percent, which is such a great cause yes. and you think the pork the pork industry is continuing to be like how do we get people to eat more pork, you know, all the time they're, they're doing all this marketing stuff, right. packaging and messaging, getting Luke Bryan to promote their products. It's like Ew. beans, we need a sexy, you know, celebrity endorser <laughs> for beans. And we need to be putting more funding into getting more bean dishes in restaurants. And oh my gosh, beans are the best. Yeah. 
And they're so, and then talking, go back to the blue zones. That's one of their staples in all blue zones is they eat lots of beans. They eat lots yes. of legumes. Beans are great. Beans are great. High in protein, high in fiber. That's one thing like meat does not have fiber. So, and that's yeah. one of the it's, main things that, that creates a healthy microbiome. So. Yeah. It's fiber deficient. So, um, we definitely need more beans and yeah. How does it start? We got to reach vets. We got to get the veterinarians to be communicating to people, um, about this. And I think we'll see a lot of change very quickly once we get the veterinary profession on board with this. Yeah. So what is your, you know, your path to doing that? I mean, do you, I mean, yeah. My path to doing that is continuing to show the world about what the AVMA is doing. The, the livestock veterinarians are such a small number and it's hard for them to mm. continue to recruit veterinarians to work in livestock medicine because it is so horrifying and there's not enough livestock veterinarians to care for the billions of animals that we have there. So it's only like five or 6% of all veterinarians are these livestock veterinarians. Oh, wow. There are much more vegan, vegetarian, animal rights, friendly veterinarians than that. But the problem is no, we haven't organized and mm. we're very quiet. So our honors job is to get them all together and direct them to take action and to change things, changing things through AVMA policy and resolutions. Right now, our oath says that, um, you know, we should be defending animals, relieving animal suffering. Um, it says protecting animal resources, which kind of gives the go ahead to exploit animals. And in our our welfare policy, it also says that using animals for food, fiber, recreation, um, experimentation is consistent with the veterinary oath. And we need to change that. We need to, we have these panels on humane endings, which is humane slaughter and depopulation. How about a panel on humane futures, where we talk yes. about what's our path to a future where we can feed the world without slaughtering animals, mm -hmm. which is something that we need to do if we're going to address climate change and all of the issues that plague our planet, disease, increasing disease risks. Yeah. So that's showing the veterinary profession that that's what we need to be looking for, not increasing the numbers of animals on this planet and increasing the profits of those slaughter industries. Instead, we need to envision a future where we don't have to slaughter animals for food and everybody has access to affordable, healthy diets that don't require the slaughter of animals because everybody deserves that choice. Mm -hmm. Well said. And, it's also and imagine going into a veterinary office and seeing all of this stuff about um animal agriculture, the harms, recipes for vegan meals, you know, Thanks. and aligning your compassion that you have for your animals and your family with other animals that are in this world. I know it's true. I mean, because people, people love their animals. I, I mean, I feel like people are more obsessed with their companion pets than in any other time in history. I mean, put on, you know, you go and home goods or, you know, a shop and they have little outfits. It's Halloween, mm -hmm. you know, they have on little outfits for their pets. Um, Instagram, I mean, Instagram is just filled. Like that's part of my Instagram is just <laughs> little animal videos. Yes. So uh, yeah. And, and people look to their vets as that they, they want their opinion on basically everything. What should I feed my pet? What should I, you know, you know, my companion, most people call them pets, you know, mm -hmm. my furry little friend, what should, how should I treat them? Um, so if, if their vet was also just trying to teach them about other animals and yeah, yeah that would be huge. It just like subtly subliminally, I, I just imagine yeah. the subliminal effect of going to a vet office and seeing compassion for all species just everywhere. Yeah. Um, you, and maybe how the do vet you doesn't leave? even have to talk about it. You know, yeah. it could just be when you're in the waiting room or there's a magazine and it's talking about how smart pigs are or how, you know, 
how cute they are, how cute, you know, chickens are (laughs) or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just think of how expensive veterinary medicine is right now. Um, how expensive it is to get your dogs and cats spayed and neutered. Oh God, it's crazy. And yeah. it, with the billions of dollars that we go, that goes to animal agriculture, if that money could be redirected towards caring for animals, like providing discounted right. spay and neuter and veterinary care. Um, I mean, that's what we should be spending that money on, not not harming more animals and enriching these companies who do it. I know these companies that's, you know, it's like they have so much money. This is the scary part, you know, because they just have so much control and so much money and so much control over policy and politicians and our government. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it's, I mean, it's good. I, I feel like it's, I am hopelessly optimistic about it, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, but I don't see, I don't know how it's going to happen. You know, I mean, obviously with the subsidies, I mean, meat is so freaking cheap. It should not mm-hmm. be as cheap. Obviously we know that like, it should be like what triple or quadruple the price, maybe more. I don't know. And so yeah. like with this whole, you know, obviously there's inflation right now and the economy is crazy. And I saw a, a news clip on YouTube about, uh, the cost of meat and 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 how it had gone up or how it had gone down with certain animal products and I'm looking at it, I'm like it should be ten times that anyways you know like y'all are talking about how expensive eggs are I'm like well eggs should be way more expensive than even that like this is not exactly yes but and the audacity what... of like these these industry groups to say oh animal rights is big business I don't know if you've seen those articles by like the Animal Ag Alliance people. <laughs> And it's like, are you kidding? Oh my god! <laughs> Compared to, we're we're up against the multi-billion-dollar companies. It's comical. You know? It's comical. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's big broccoli. Who? That's what I always say. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, it's big broccoli. Who's doing all the propaganda? Is that who it is? They're in control of the government. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah, the leguminati. Yeah, the leguminati. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. <laughs> Use that. <laughs> the leguminati. Yeah, yeah, um they're not the ones who are controlling everything. It is the animal act. I mean, it's it's just It's just crazy, but yeah, trying to I think there's um I don't know if you're familiar with Rowdy Girl. She's in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And she and I don't know how it works, but she does have something on her page about trying to help farmers transition or farmers and ranchers transition to growing, you know, mushrooms or legumes or what, cause that's the yeah. issue. It's like, well, what if, even if you want to transition, you're like, I do not want to do this anymore. Where do you go? You know, like I, and I, I think that her organization is probably a good one to, to reach out to, but otherwise, you know, yeah, we had, farmers- tried to pass a bill in California that would be a farm transition bill and, you know, encourage farmers to transition to non-animal uh, agriculture. And that was killed by the Cattlemen's Association. Of course it's it like, was. Why, what you guys are shooting? Why? Why? Why not just why? let people transition and be fun- funded for that? It's like, uh-huh. what is your deal? They're so defensive. They're and- so defensive. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and that's why it has to be, you know, individuals or civilians who create their own kind of group or organization to to try to give people resources because, you know, it's probably not, not right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, because if it's not going to pass in California, which California is usually when it it comes to animal rights or anything health, food related, you know, organic pesticides, that kind of stuff, y'all are usually one of the first. So yeah, only if things are brought directly to the voters, we have mm. this agriculture committee that trying to get stuff past the agriculture committee does not fly. They kill yeah. any sort of animal protection or <laughs> agriculture related bills. So that's why prop 12 works so well is because that question was brought directly to the people. Of course, right. the pork board fought it all the way up to the Supreme court um, but ultimately the Supreme court upheld prop 12, but now they're trying with the eats act right now to, oh, what is that? Talk to us the, about that. Oh my gosh. The eats act is this act that they're trying to put into the farm bill that would effectively overturn more than a thousand 
animal protection laws and food safety laws. And it would overturn Prop 12. It would basically say that a state can't put forth a regulation that would affect the production, how things are produced in another state, which is kind of ridiculous. It, it defeats states' rights and different states have should have the right to dictate yeah. what is put in their yeah. on their shelves and what really? is sold in their state that is in alignment with their morality their beliefs and we don't want you know salmonella infected pork for, that's from gestation crates to be sold in california you know supermarkets yeah. right. that would increase our costs um for you know our public health costs because there it has been shown that the pigs housed in gestation crates their piglets have diseases that are more virulent um like campylobacter salmonella they're more likely to be infected with those pathogens and those pathogens stay with them all the way to slaughter and then that in, that goes onto the shelves people purchase them they get sick Salmonella alone costs our country $1.9 billion in costs just from pigs. Salmonella just from pigs costs us $1.9 billion. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, of course, we have the, the right to regulate what is sold in our state and if, if it poses a, a threat and will cost us money. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. So no we're idea. trying to defeat the EATS Act. Um, I think you can go to defeats, e, defeat <laughs> or org, I should know this by heart, um, to sign on and send a, a letter yeah, to I'll your legislators. That is nuts. DefeatEats.com. Yeah, that's the website. Defeats.com. Okay, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Um, cool. That is nuts. I I had seen uh, just something briefly about it, but I didn't know what it was. So yeah, that's... Ah, gosh. <laughs> yeah, they're just relentless and we have to be as relentless as they are. 100%. Um, so wow. yeah. It has been a pleasure having you on. Um if you want to share a little bit about what you're working on now or any news that you have. We have a, an exciting story coming out in the next few weeks. So follow our honor, our honor vets on social media, follow me on social media at Dr. Crystal Heath, um, go to ourhonor.org for our website. Um, as avian influenza picks up, we're, we're gonna be doing a lot more, um, showing a lot more stuff about that and about how these animals are being killed now. Um, we just had a 142,000 turkeys um, were killed in San Pete, Utah because of avian influenza this week. We, we'd kind of had a lull in avian influenza up until this week, and we're trying to find out exactly how those birds were killed. I emailed the state vet and they replied back with, they were killed using AVMA approved methods. It's like, no duh, but <laughs> duh, they did not want to tell me which <laughs> methods those were. So we will see if they reply to my email, but um, we will find out soon enough that is foyable information. Um, so stay tuned and we give lots of ways that you can take action, give our information to your vets, let them know about us and how they as veterinarians can take action. We have flyers available on our website to give to your veterinarians, tag them on social media um, with our content. And those are all the ways you can sort of take action for the animals um, just from your home. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate all of the work you're doing for the animals and for the planet and people. And um, we just, we need more people like you. So, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something new. I know I did. This was not something that was on my radar for some odd reason, and I had no idea about vet school and how that all works. Um, so yeah, I hope that you got something out of that. Be sure to check out 
all of the organizations that that Dr. Crystal is working with. I will put all of that information in the show notes. I'm also going to put the article from The Intercept. Um, there's also a video attached to that article which with her and Glenn Greenwald, which is really great. So be sure to check that out. And as always, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for your compassion and kindness as always. Until next time, peace and plants. Thank you.